Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. In today's episode, I'm going to do a couple things. Number one, answer some listener questions. And number two, give an update on ketamine, which I last touched on in the Ketamine 7 Questions episode about nine months ago. We've had a few people email us uh, with their stories and asking, can I tell my story? I'm back from the abyss. And the answer is, maybe. <laughs> you, you maybe can. Um, the, number, the number one thing is, I want to do it live, if at all possible, or in person, I'm sorry. So that would mean doing it here in my office in Fort Collins, or possibly in Denver, or if I could meet you somewhere else when I'm traveling. But I think there's something very powerful, and you can hear it, I I hope, in the stories, that when the storyteller and I sit in the same room, there's a tension and a connection and an intimacy that you just cannot get on Zoom or Skype. So for now, I'm trying to limit all these episodes to recording in person. So if you'd like to tell your story on the podcast, number one, come to Fort Collins. Number two, um, yeah, we should make sure that you're a good fit. And if number one, it would be a meaningful and helpful thing for you to share your story and if others might benefit as well. So if you meet those criteria, please contact me through craigheacockmd.com. We recently got a very interesting email and it was multiple paragraphs, but the gist of it was Can you heal from trauma that you can't remember? Which I thought was an incredibly interesting question. But let me just start with a little bit about memory. So here's a cool memory experiment you can do. Think of some event in your childhood, something very funny or weird or profound or scary or sad or something that each of your family members experienced, and then go to them individually and ask them, hey, do you remember what happened when we saw Shamu, or hey, when we were on that boat in the Delaware, what happened? And then just let your family members talk, and maybe ask some clarifying questions, but it will blow your mind, because what you'll find is that all your family members have Alzheimer's. No, (laughs) what what you'll find is that Nobody remembers the same, even things that are so profoundly fill-in-the-blank, moving, scary, sad, weird, that you think, surely, mom, dad, my big brother, we're going to remember this the same. But when you go and sit with people and ask them to recall their memories, you would think that all your brain, all your family members are brain damaged. Because the thing is, memory lies somewhere in between all these vertices of your family members that you probably hold some of the truth and they each hold some of the truth. But what really happened? I mean, in many cases, we'll never know. And this, excuse me, this comes up a lot with trauma because people want to get validation from family members about what happened or who did what or who perpetrated what. But One huge problem is every family member literally has a different memory of what happened. It's almost like if you think of a family as a mountain, this huge mountain, and each family member is an emerging watershed. And so all these family events are these storms that blow onto the mountain. 
and it carves out different paths in each watershed on each side of the mountain. There's the mom's side and the dad's side and the you side and the brother's side. But by the time you get to the bottom, 20 years of storms and precipitations, each of these watersheds look very different. And you could go look at each of the other watersheds, or if you will, kind of memoryscapes of your family members and think, what happened? Where were these people? Were they even in the same house? So I think that's the first thing that I thought about when I read this email. Can, can you heal trauma that you can't remember? And so the first thing I would say is, we really don't remember trauma in a narrative way accurately. And that's okay, because our bodies know. You know, our sympathetic nervous systems know, our parasympathetic nervous systems know. And for those of you who do trauma work, who have experienced trauma work, or for example, if you listen to episode 20, MDMA and the Inner Healer, or the EMDR episodes that we did earlier, you realize that it's often not that important to come up with a narrative, detailed memory of what happened, because as you go deep into the trauma experience, things will emerge. Now, back in the late 80s and 90s, or early 90s, there was this whole phenomenon of using hypnotism to take people, kind of age regress them and pull up trauma. But one of the huge problems with that was the, the hypnotists were leading people saying like, oh, did your teacher touch you? Or did your coach, what did he do then? Did he do X or Y? And so there was a lot of these sort of implanted memories that um, got tons of people in trouble and basically kind of discredited trauma treatment for a time. But what I'm talking about is, is not that, you know, what we're seeing now with the somatic trauma therapies and, and the psychedelic work is that the trauma work is going in interior, but not with a sort of detailed narrative kind of focus. You don't need to actually remember exactly what happened because probably in a narrative way you don't. What matters is what's inside and what you're holding on with the trauma and what you're going to do with that. Okay, let's move on to talk a little bit more about ketamine. This is a ketamine update approximately nine months after my first ketamine episode. I recently gave a talk called Ketamine Lessons from 500 Sessions. What could possibly go wrong? Well, (laughs) uh, a lot of things can go wrong. And today I want to talk about what I've learned from the last three years of using ketamine with patients. And I want to preface this first by saying ketamine is one of the most impressive treatments for depression to come along in many, many years. And it's changing people's lives, and I'm seeing that every day in my practice. But I have changed my mind in one big way. And let me focus on that. I think that's going to be the the centerpiece of today's update. So in the first two and a half years of working with ketamine, I mostly did intramuscular injections. And while those were effective... We uh, were collecting blood pressure data and a lot of observational data. And in those first five, 600 sessions, we saw 
at times some very frightening increases in blood pressure, uncontrollable nausea, um, really disturbing panic reactions. And just in general, it started to feel that some of these um, near dissociative or fully dissociative ketamine sessions were a little bit like flying a four-seater Cessna over the Colorado Rockies. Like it, it could go fine or it could get a little scary or a lot scary quick. Well, then about eight months ago, I started transitioning to doing almost all IVs, intravenous treatments. And it's been an eye-opener. Because as opposed to the IM treatment where you inject ketamine into the muscle and people are deeply plunging into the ketamine experience within a few minutes, with the IV, you are usually dripping it in the vein over 30 to 40 minutes. And so people are entering the ketamine dissociative state much more slowly, they're in it much longer, and they leave it much more gently. So now, after about 800 sessions, I have fully become a convert to IV. And at first, I didn't want to do IV because I thought, oh, it's just more equipment. Excuse me, and who wants an IV in their arm? And you got to have a medical assistant or nurse to help you with it. And it just seemed like a lot more hassle. But I'll tell you this, what we're finding is that with the IV treatments, we're not having blood pressure scares. We're not having the panic reactions. We're not having people have scary apneas where they stop breathing and their and their pulse oxygen plunges. Because with the IV, again, it's it's a slower, more steady onset. And if people start to have a high blood pressure reaction or anything, you just turn off the IV. And so in the last six months, I realized uh, IV is like a hmm, IV is like a 737. You just you can take off smoother. You put it on cruise control, you watch the dials, but it's a whole different experience than the Cessna four-seater 20,000 feet below you bouncing around in the mountains, which I think is more like the IM. Now, they'll both get you to their destination, but given that do no harm is the number one maxim of medicine, I think more and more we're going to see people moving to IV treatments. And even patients like them, more. It was it was hard at first to convince a lot of my patients to switch from IM to IV, but now they're all on board. And I'm on board because I'm not worrying about these different medical problems. Now, there probably is a subset of people who are generally safe to do the IM treatments for ketamine, and those would be people under age 40, no blood pressure issues, no sleep apnea, no cardiovascular issues, and ideally, folks who've had some psychedelic or mind-altering experience. Those, those people in that subset, I would say, do well. Anyone who's not in that subset, I think, really uh, should be getting IV treatments. It also appears very clear to me after about 800 treatments that the most effective way to do ketamine is to do a fully dissociative treatment which means you lose awareness of your body and your ego and the chair and Fort Collins. Um, Now that is still being studied. We don't have good data yet in, in large trials, IM versus IV, nor dissociative versus non-dissociative. But I'm thinking again, after 
three years of a whole lot of treatments that IV is going to turn out to be a much safer way to do it. And I think fully dissociative treatments are going to turn out to be much more effective. And one thing I've seen in that realm is that a lot of the IV clinics in the big cities will do six-ish IVs over two or three weeks to get people feeling better. But I'm finding that if you start at the dissociative threshold in the first treatment and then go to fully dissociative ketamine, you can typically get better people better in two treatments, which saves time and money and suffering. And now that we can do them IV, it just feels much safer and and better for everyone. So I'll admit there is some observer and expectation bias on my part in that from the get-go, I've suspected that fully dissociative ketamine treatment is more effective. And many people, particularly psychiatrists, fall in that boat. So I will be very interested to see when the um, dose-response data comes out. But for now, I'm sticking with IV, and I'm sticking with fully dissociative treatments. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please share it with anyone else who might find hope or meaning in this story. Check out our website, bftapodcast.com, where you can learn more about us and this project, get more information on the treatments mentioned in the stories, as well as additional resources and music credits. You can also email us with comments or story requests. If you have time, please rate us on iTunes as this helps us spread these stories far and wide. Much gratitude to my good friend Chris Johnson who does our sound. And thank you for listening to Back from the Abyss. May each of you find the strength and support to find your way through the darkness. <laughs>